0: we could open our Bibles to uh, First Chronicles, we're going to look at chapter uh, uh, 4 and uh, 5 tonight, and maybe even chapter 6. You know, it's a very challenging thing to make a genealogy exciting, and uh, for the most part they're not really exciting, but as we've been going through this, we've spent uh, quite a bit of time in the first couple of chapters for good reason, just to kind of set the stage Uh, For where the chronicler is taking us, and if you remember the chronicler, the one who has compiled all of this information for us, um, the, the real crux of the matter is to get us to Judah, to show that Judah... Uh, through the line of Judah would come not only King David, but also Jesus Christ. And so the whole point of Chronicles is from a priestly point of view to get us to the understanding that through all of the mass of humanity, starting all the way back to Adam, going all the way up to uh, David's time, and then finally to Christ, there is a genealogy. And, and that genealogy that we've been looking at has uh, a very specific purpose. Because remember, the Bible is a book of redemption, and, and so in order to show us the book of redemption, it has to show us certain individuals and, and God's plan of redemption throughout. And it's really a wonderful thing if you take time to look at it, to see God's plan of redemption. From Genesis chapter 3, when man fell in the garden, all the way up until the crucifixion of Jesus, and even going beyond that to even future to just to think of God rescuing you know all of us at, be, before the great tribulation period comes forth on the earth the lord is going to retrieve his bride the bible makes it clear and the types in the bible are everywhere to show us that that is what god is going to do very plainly and even in t- in types in different parts of the Bible, and ultimately redeeming a people, Jew and Gentile, at the end of all time. For those who have um, received Christ into their heart, who are born again, you will spend an eternity in glory, an eternity in the eternal state. And folks, I'm really looking forward to that. Are you looking forward to that? Because that's where we belong, Right now, this is just temporary, and 70, 80, 90 years, maybe, depending on how good your health is, or your genetics, or God's grace on your life, but then, think of it, eternity, it'll never end, and yet, we have such a responsibility now, don't we? to make this choice now in this time that we have to either accept Christ or to reject him. And so the chronicler is making it very clear through these uh, genealogies, if you're able to study them and look at them, there's a rhyme and reason, and we've been looking at that. And tonight we're going to be looking at the uh, chapter four that begins with the line of Judah, and so let's just go ahead and get right into it, and I, I'm going to leave this map on the screen uh, ...for us tonight as we go, because I want you to just see how God is going to start here with, with Judah, and then he's going to slowly move around to Reuben, and then Gad, and then the uh, East Manasseh, and then he's going to be filling in the blanks with these other tribes. He's going to be naming individuals um, and, 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 and lines of people. And again, and the whole idea is to get us finally to David. We're in chapter 10. We're going to land somewhere in that area. We're going to land on David, and we're going to feel like we're back in Samuel again. And I'm really looking forward to that because Samuel is one of my favorite books of the Old Testament because we're going to spend a lot of time looking at David again, although we we won't take as much time because we've been through Samuel and 2 Samuel. But we'll, we'll just, we'll, it'll be like an old friend that we'll visit and we'll, we'll be getting some more information as we go. And then we'll cruise right on into Second Chronicles and then finally into Ezra and Nehemiah where it gently leads us right into it. So it's going to be really fascinating to see how that works. But notice in verse 1 of chapter 4, notice what it says. The sons of Judah were Perez and Hezron and Carmi and Hur and Shobal. And notice, you know, sometimes in genealogies, um, you have to pay attention to which direction the genealogy is going. Sometimes it'll, it'll, it'll start, you know, from the oldest to the, you know, or the oldest to the youngest, or sometimes it starts in reverse order. And you've got to pay attention to how it works and, and the words that are used here. Because, for instance, when you look at this, the sons of Judah were Perez, Hezron, Carmi, Hur, and Shobal. And then it says... And Rei, the son of Shobal. So we're really following the line of Shobal from here, and then and then Shobal begat Jahath, and Jahath begat Ahumai, and Lahad, and these were the family of the Zorathites. And these were the sons of the father of Itam, Jezreel, Ishma, and Ibdash. And the name of their sister was Poni, And Penuel was the father of Gedor and. Ye- Ezer, the father of Husha, these were the sons of her, the firstborn of Ephrathah, the father of Bethlehem. So we're going to pause there just for a second, because uh, Ephrathah, being uh, the father of Bethlehem, we know a lot about this, right? Because this is the place where Jesus was born, in the land of Judah, in the tribe of Judah, in that land, in Bethlehem. And Ephrathah was uh, the name of a man. And that place was called Ephrathah and, and it's also called the house of bread. And this we know is where Jesus was born and that's why we will pause here just for a second to I want to remind you of one of the most famous prophecies in the Old Testament. It's in Micah chapter 5 verse 2. You don't have to go there but maybe just mark it alongside next to verse 4 here. Micah 5 verse 2. And let me just read it to you. It's a prophecy hundreds of years before Jesus would be incarnate in the in, in, through the Virgin Mary. And it says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. So here, God, through the prophet Micah, is, is going to be making a statement about one who is to come. And we know that that one who is to come is the Messiah. And he's very specific about where he's going to be born. And... Um, and and, and the tribe that he's going to be born in, and the city. Do you realize how crazy that is? That's like saying New York, Monroe County, and then Penfield. (laughs) That's really what God is doing here. Not to mention that he's zooming out from the whole world. He assumes, you know, we're talking about Jerusalem. But he says, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, and here's the name of the man whose uh, city was named after him, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one. Notice the word one is capitalized. And the reason for that is the translators knew that this one is the Messiah. And you can take that to the bank. This is a prophecy of Jesus Christ. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, God says, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Did you catch that? We're not talking about a man now, are we? Not a a mortal man. Whoever this one is, has been from everlasting. And wouldn't you agree with me, none of us here are from everlasting, But Christ always existed, even before the incarnation, even before the seed of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit planted in the womb of of Mary. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. Before that seed was even planted, Jesus existed prior to that. We see him making appearances to the children of Israel in the Old Testament from everlasting. So there it is. But this is it from, from Ephrathah, the father of Bethlehem. And now going on to verse 5, it says, And Asher, the father of Tekoa, had two wives, Hela and Nara. Nara bore him Ahuzam, Hefer, Tamini, and Heashtari. These were the sons of Neara, and the sons of Hela were Zareth, Zohar, and Ethnan, and Kaz. Begat Anub, Zobaba, and the families of Aharhel, the son of Harhum. You try pronouncing all these words, it's really exciting. And you know something? I don't know how to pronounce these names. <laughs> I'm making it up as I go. But some of these, I, I know because uh, uh, they're, they're very uh, more Jewish, and I'm, I'm more familiar with some of them than others. And then notice verse nine, and we're going to pause here for a few moments. Now Jabez was more honorable than his brothers, and his mother called his name Jabez, saying, "Because I have bore him in pain." So his name literally is literally means sorrow. His name means sorrow. Notice what it says in verse 10. And Jabez called on the oops. and Jabez called on the name of the. Uh, He called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you may bless me indeed and enlarge my territory, that your hand would be with me, and that you would keep me from evil, that I may not cause pain. And so God granted him what he requested. And notice in the very first part of that, where he says, uh, Oh, you know, oh Lord, oh, that you would bless me indeed. And whenever you see a phrase like this, um, it really indicates. Someone who has a great deal of heart or 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 passion or zeal. Okay, so when you see that, um, you can tell that uh, Jabez was in this place of just. uh, It comes from a a heart out of passion, and um, and you know sometimes as we grow in the Lord and as we as we learn to pray, it reminds me of Romans eight twenty six where it says this. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not always know what we should pray for as we ought, but notice the Spirit himself. Notice the Spirit himself, not herself, not itself. The Spirit of God is a he. Throughout the the Bible, the Bible calls God a he. He's not a she. He's not an it. I bring that up for a good reason, and I think you know why. But... But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And uh, sometimes as you pray, that is going to be one of those things that you're going to have to uh, come to terms with. Have you ever prayed and realized that there are times when you just don't have the words to to pray? You know, you're really struggling with something and you're wondering, um, you know, you just don't have the words or you're struggling with your emotions, whatever it may be. And sometimes you just kneel before your bed and you're like, Lord, I, I, don't, I don't know what to pray. I'm not even sure what to say. And, and sometimes, you know, God can interpret those groanings. And sometimes, there have been times in my life where I've been so frustrated, so hurt, or so undone that all I could do is just groan in ways that um, nobody else could understand but myself. And actually, I didn't even understand what was going on. And I'd be so frustrated trying to... Uh, uh, express what I'm feeling. Have you ever had that problem? Well, you're not even sure what's wrong with you, honestly. Maybe there's a number of things. Anybody, does that register with anybody that this happened? It happens in life? And you're, just, you're distraught about something. Everything has just gotten you out of sequence. And you're just like, Lord, I don't know what it is. And God knows what it is. And sometimes it's just good to pour out your heart in utterings that can't be expressed. And some people use the, the gift of tongues for instances like that. You know, pray for that gift. It, it, it ought not to be the thing that dominates you or dominates a service or anything like that because the gift of tongues has been, you know, maligned so much in the church and people have made such a big deal out of it and beaten people over the head with it. And it really was never intended. It's supposed to just be a sweet communication between you and God and it's personal but notice Jabez says, oh, that you would bless me. And, and, and don't just overlook that word, oh, you know, because um, when I think of Jabez and, and, and this prayer, and let me just read it, he says, oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory, that your hand would be with me and that you would keep me from evil, that I may not cause pain. And that's it. That's the whole prayer. Think of that. It's just kind of short and sweet. It's not really long. It's not in the King James 17th century English. It's very plain, it's very heartfelt. Hence the word, oh, before I, oh, that you would bless me indeed. There was a passion behind it. And when I think of this psalm, or when I think of this prayer, I think of Psalm 144. Psalm of David, when he says, happy are the people who are in such a state. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. Whose God is Jehovah. It reminds me of Psalm 32, verse 2. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Or Psalm 85, verse, or 84, verse 5, excuse me. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. So when I think of when I read that prayer, those psalms came to my mind. And I think it's interesting that the Holy Spirit sees fit to make sure that this short prayer is recorded here for us all to see. You know, I, I mean, if you look at that, oh Lord, oh that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory. You know, seeking God's blessing is a good thing, isn't it? Seeking God's blessing is a good thing. God's blessings are the best, especially when they are in God's timing, especially when they're in God's timing. I believe that God is not only in the blessing, but delivering the blessings at the right time for the optimum effect of the heart. Do you you know what I mean by that? Sometimes you can receive a blessing maybe too early and your heart really wasn't prepared for it. Maybe somebody jumped the gun. Maybe you were eager and greedy for it and you somehow were able to finagle it, whatever it may be. But your heart really wasn't ready for it. But there's something about this idea of when God wants to bless you and he does it at his perfect time and when we, when we allow that to happen, when we take our hands off the wheel and, and not try to shove the dove, <laughs> when we try not to manipulate the Holy Spirit as if he can be manipulated, he can't. But there are things in our life that we can try to work out and, and, and rob things before their time. There's a proverb that says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when the desire comes, it is a tree of life. And I think of it like that. You know, when God wants to give me a blessing, and maybe it's something you've been praying for and desiring and wanting and praying over and over about, and then finally the Lord brings it to pass. Isn't it like that? Isn't it like a tree of life? It comes at the right time, at the right moment, in the right way, and there's no guilt, there's no shame, there's nothing associated. It's just like a a wonderful gift at the right time. And I've experienced times like that. And it's the sweetest. It really is. And and having experienced those times, I'm becoming more aware that I just need to be patient in all things. Just to be patient, just to wait. And not try to struggle or strive to make things happen. I just got to let God do what he's going to do, right? And so it's important to do that. Or in Proverbs thirteen nineteen, a desire accomplished is sweet to the soul. I like that. But notice in the prayer he says, also Lord, uh, that you oh that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory, and you know farming and raising cattle and livestock and, and such was common in that time, and uh, having ample land to do so was important. And so he's praying, Lord, give me the give me what I need. You know my livestock is more than this land can bear, and God, you know, gives him the more land and gives him more territory, and also that He would keep him from evil. Notice, notice what He says there, and that your hand would be with me, and that you would keep me from evil. Why? That I might not cause pain. Doesn't that sound like the model prayer to you? Remember in. Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus said, in this manner, therefore you ought to pray. And he gives the, the, the model prayer for us, but then he gets down to verse 13 and he says, and, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's literally what it means. Deliver us from the evil one. Aware that this very name Meant sorrow. Jabez's heart was not to cause pain. He didn't want to cause pain. Notice that you would keep me from evil, that I might not cause pain. He knew that being engrossed in evil, and you know this too, for every one of us in this room, we understand this. When you're engrossed in evil, it's only going to bring about harm and destruction, isn't it? And why is that? Because every single day throughout America, and even in our own lives as Christians, we prove this scripture to be true, where it says, for the wages of sin is death. Yes, and even for the Christian. For us to, to, to engage in some sin, it's going to bring bitter fruit. It's going to cause a death. It's going to cause something to diminish. Whenever anything diminishes, that, that's decay, that's speaking of death. And sometimes that's just confidence in God. You sin, even as a Christian, and you find yourself not feeling very loved, or, or maybe the devil and yourself are, are be, you're beating, getting beat up, or you're beating yourself up, and the devil's you know, agreeing with you. And what is that? I mean, you're not going to die and go to hell because you're a believer. No, you confess it and you move on, right? But the devil loves to beat you up. But there's a death involved. There is a decay in my confidence, a decay in my blessed assurance even. And some people have a really struggle, they struggle with that. They think that once they mess up, God is done with them. And that's not the nature of God if you're a believer. Even if you're an unbeliever, God gives you so many chances. And that's just how good he is. Have you forgotten the goodness of God as a believer? Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he? He's so wonderful to us. I could never deserve it. And I love how the Lord records the simple prayer and how God answered his simple Prayer. I think that's what's so profound about this. Many years ago, they, um, different authors and people have made a big deal about the prayer of Jabez. And it's really a simple prayer. It's nothing that should be you know, blown out of proportion. But God stops in this genealogy and he makes mention of a simple man with a simple prayer that was heartfelt. Isn't that amazing? I wonder how often, God, would you stop the train for my prayers? And I think he would. I think he does. I wonder when we get to glory of all the things that have been prayed for, will he unravel to us? And maybe it'll take an eternity for us to be gathered around his throne and for him to say, you know what? So-and-so in, uh, in the bleachers back there on row four million. <laughs> I remember that prayer. Do you remember that? And the Lord could make us all understand what it was at the same time, and we'll give him praise and glory for it. Isn't that amazing to consider? And I love what it says in Hebrews too. Concerning Jabez, it says, But without faith, Hebrews 11, verse 6, but without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he, God, is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Are you diligently seeking the Lord? Are you diligently seeking him? Or is it just something you make in a, you append to the end of your day? Do you begin your day in prayer? Do you end your day in prayer? Throughout the day, are you praying? And you can do that. And listen, don't, let, don't close your eyes. <laughs> you know, sometimes you have to close your eyes. If you're in an environment where things are distracting, close your eyes. But most of the time, when I'm driving somewhere, or even in my office, I'm sitting there and I'm praying with my eyes wide open. But if I find myself getting distracted, then I close my eyes, because sometimes I can get distracted. Or if I'm really tired, I keep my eyes open so I don't start, you know, oh. <laughs> you know that thought, you know, you've had that happen to you. Keep your eyes open, stay focused, do whatever you've got to do, but communicate to the Lord, because. Because of this man's steadfast prayer and his faith in God, what happened? God granted him his petitions. And God is not a respecter of persons. He'll do that for you too. Do you believe that he will? I mean, really, do you believe that he will? Most of us don't. And that's why it makes prayer the most difficult thing in the world, and yet the easiest. It ought to be the most simple thing that we do, because prayer is really nothing more than communicating with our Heavenly Father, and then letting Him communicate to us through His Word, or even in the still small voice in our hearts, however it happens. But I wonder, church, seriously, do we really believe it? Because I believe if we did, we would have bigger prayer meetings. But the prayer meetings in this church not unlike many other churches, are the least attended things in the whole week. It is. And I want, I want to ask you about that. I want you to pray about that. What are you doing on a Tuesday night? What's more important than a half hour of your time? To come and engage in corporate prayer with your brothers and sisters. It's always the same eight or nine people. Sometimes we have 13 But the church is a lot bigger than that. Come and join us. I ask in the mercy and the grace of God that you come and join us. Even if it's for 10 minutes, 15 minutes. If you're on your way to the store, stop by for 15 minutes. Get up and go. You don't have to stay for the full hour. But come join us. Is there anything more important than corporate prayer? Think of it. When do you corporately pray with your brothers and sisters? It's very important. So this short, sincere, this reverent, faithful prayer is effective. Remember Jesus, he says, And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Notice that Jabez didn't use many words. In fact, very few words. It's not the many words that's going to get it done. It's not even how eloquent it can be. Some people don't come to prayer because they feel like they don't sound like everybody else. Well, who cares about what everybody sounds like? If you come and just say, Lord, I'm a sinner, save me, or Lord, help me with this thing, you don't just put it in the language and nobody's going to have a problem with that. Not in this church. And if they do, I'm going to talk to them. I'm like, what's the matter with you? (laughs) Leave that person alone. You know, there's no reason for us not to be able to share our heart together. But will we? Short prayers. It's okay to even pray for the same thing. Now, don't get vain repetition. Don't take that out of context here because I don't believe that it means that you can't pray for the same thing over and over and over again. But what's going on in your heart? I mean, some people, and I don't mean to get on the, any Catholics here, but I, I've been in situations where people will say the, Lord, the Lord's Prayer ad nauseum because they just learned it by rote. They're not even thinking anymore about what they're saying. That, to me, is a vain repetition. Empty. But when you actually pray for the same thing. Lord, I pray for my, 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 my family, you know, my members of my family that don't know you, my mother and my brother and my sister, whatever it is. Lord, would you open their eyes? And when it's real and you're in the moment, it's genuine. It's not a rep. You may have prayed that thing every single day for 10 years. You keep praying that until you see that person come across the threshold of the church. Keep praying, and there are many young people who are walking with Jesus today because their mother or their father or their grandparents, their grandmothers have been praying on their knees for years. Oh, Lord, save Joe. You know him, Lord. He's a young man, and he's addicted to heroin. And Lord, it's gonna kill him. I know it is. You gotta save him, Lord. You gotta save him. And then that... Faithful woman prays and prays every single day that same prayer, meaning it from her heart. And then one day she gets a knock on our door and it's her grandson Joe in tears, broken. It happens. It happens. But we don't believe it because we don't do it. Church, I'm not just saying this to you because I realize this message goes way beyond those four walls. We have to wake up. We have to get serious about prayer. I need to get serious about prayer. And I'm asking you too as well. We can't afford to not. We can't afford to be lazy in these days that we live in. Pray with sincerity and don't give up until the Lord tells you to stop. James 15, verse 16 tells us: confess your trespasses to one another and pray for each for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Notice that. The effective, fervent prayer. That means a fervent prayer from the heart. Sounds like Joey Jabez's uh, prayer as well. Oh Lord, that you would do this. It's a fervent prayer. And that word literally means to display one's activity, to work, you know, to, um, uh, to effectually work, to show it. Whether it's by yourself or even in public, it doesn't really matter. Jesus told us in Matthew 7, he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be, door, it'll be open to you. Notice, ask and it will be given to you. The, the literal phrase means ask and keep asking. That's not vain repetition. If your heart is honest and fervent as you speak, whatever it is, that's not, that's not vain repetition. That's a heart's desire. That's something completely different than a vain repetition that you're just memorizing and going through the motions. You know what I'm talking about. But that's what we need to get back to. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and him to knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you? If his son asks for bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? So this short Prayer of Jabez, wonderful. Remember how short it was. Sometimes the greatest prayers are very simple and you don't have to cut yourself. You don't have to get on your knees and get in the right position and put your knees on glass and crush broken glass and and walk around the house in pain and and, and just go through all this stuff. You know what you're doing? You're doing the work yourself. What you're basically saying is, if I can put myself in this position where I'm just I'm really hurting and I'm you know broken and I'm making all these sacrifices to make myself miserable when I pray, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your time. Does your position matter? It really doesn't. But you know, there's something about getting on your knees. I can pray in in, in my chair and be reclining and, and God receiving my prayer. And there's sometimes I'm like, you know what, Lord? It's good for me just to get on my knees when no one else is around. And I just get on my knees and I just pray to you with my hands lifted high. There's something about that lowly place. I'm just acknowledging, Lord, you're the king. You're, you're the awesome God and I'm nothing. And I'm coming to you as a child. And I need you, Lord. Lord. So going on now in verse eleven it says Chelub the brother of Shuha begat Mahir who was the father of Eshtan and Eshtan begat Beth Rapha Arapha uh, Pasea, and Tehina, the father of Ir Nahash these were the men of Rikah and the sons of Kenaz were Othniel you might want to underline that name Othniel and Sarahiah. the sons of Othniel were. Now, Othniel, uh, he's listed here. He was Israel's first judge. If you remember in the book of Judges, he was the first judge. It's recorded for us in Judges chapter 3, beginning in verse 7 through 11. And then he goes on and he says, And uh, Maonathai, who begot Ophrah, and Saraiah begot Joab, the father of Geharashim, which literally means valley of craftsmen, for they were craftsmen. And the sons of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. Does that name sound familiar? Caleb, the son of Jephunneh? The sons of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, were Eru, Elah, and Naam. And the son of Elah was Kenaz. And this was the Caleb that was Joshua's colleague, remember, who went and spied out the land, remember, before they came into the promised land. He took a man from each of the tribes and went out and spied out the land. this is that Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the one who Would go in with Joshua. And it says in verse 16: the sons of Jehalalel were Ziph and Zipha, Tiriah, and Azarel. And the sons of Ezra were Jether, Mered, Ephor, and Jalon. And Mered's wife bore Miriam, Shem, Shem, uh, Shemaiah, and Ishba, the father of Eshtemoah. His wife, uh, Yehudadijah, bore Jared, the father of Gador, and Haber, the father of Soko, and Jekuthiel, the father of Zenoa. All these were the sons of Bithiah, the daughter of Pharaoh, whom Mered took. And the sons of Hodiah's wife, the sister of Naham, were the fathers of Kilah, the Garmite, and the Esht. And, and and of Eshtemoa the Maacathite, and the sons of Shimon were Amnon and Rinna, Ben Hanan and Tylon, and the sons of Ishi were Zoheth and Ben Zoheth, and the sons of Shelah, the sons of Judah. Were Eir the father of Lecha and Leda, the father of Merisha, and the families of the house of the linen workers of the house of Ashbeah. Now, this is interesting because you might want to write in the margin of your Bible in verse 21 here, uh, Genesis chapter 38, because Shelah was the son of Judah. Shelah was one of Judah's sons, remember, that Judah had from a Canaanite woman recorded for us in Genesis 38. Judah had um, relations with this Canaanite woman and gave birth to three sons, Er, Onan, and also Shelah. And if you remember, um, Judah had given a woman by the name of Tamar to Er, his firstborn, and God killed him because he was a wicked man. And so naturally his younger brother, was Onan, was supposed to take her as wife and raise up seed for his brother. But he did not do that faithfully. And you can read about that in Genesis 38. And so God killed him as well. And so now the youngest, Shelah, was too young to have children. And so Judah told Tamar to wait, to go back to her father's house and, and, and put on her... Um, her, uh, her clothes for uh, being a, uh, um, what's that? Yes, that's the word I'm looking for, uh, her clothes of her widowhood. And so she did that waiting until Shalab was old enough. And we know that by the time Shalab was old enough, um, Judah, his father, didn't give Tamar to him. And so she you know, took advantage of the situation and had children by Judah through a little scheme that she had planned there. But notice that, uh, as far as we know, Shelah was never given Tamar, or Tamar was never given Shelah, like it should have happened. But at somewhere down the road, Shelah had children, and what did he name his firstborn? He named him after his his older brother who died, heir. I just think that's interesting. And what they call that is a leverate custom of raising up a child in the name of a brother who has died. And so that was something that was common, that was was done. So back in verse 21 in our text says, So also Joachim, the men of Chozeba and Joash... Seraph, who ruled in Moab and Jeshubalehem, And it says, now the records are ancient. And so, even at the time that the chronicler was recording these things for us, the records that he had were ancient. Okay? And so, these are very ancient records that we're looking at. And I find it interesting that as time goes on and archaeologists discover things, you know, um, as they're going out and about doing their thing, and they'll find some. A piece of papyrus or something written on a stell or something, and they'll find these old names that nobody knew about, and they're not written anywhere else but in the Bible because they've been preserved in the Bible from those old records. Those old records have perished, many of them, but they're recorded now, and and they find this stuff, and the only place that it's mentioned is here, and why? Because the Bible is accurate. It's accurate. And God made sure that the record that we have is rock solid. It's rock solid. So, verse twenty-three: These were the potters, and those who dwell in Nettaim and Gederah, and they and there they dwelt with the king for his work. And so, we'll get into uh, Simeon, the, the family of Simeon. Now, notice if you look at the map in front on the screen here that Judah is this whole green section uh, in the southern part of, of Israel. And you'll notice this little circle right here that's a little lighter green, right in the center of the land of Judah. And that's where the tribe of Simeon was. And that's, it's a smaller group of people. And they received no allotment of land except within the allotment of Judah. And Joshua tells us why. And he, Again, write a note in the margin of your Bible, Joshua 19, verse 9, because you may be wondering, why did they receive, right in the smack dab in the middle of Judah, why are they there? Why aren't they like everybody else who has clearly defined boundaries like that? And it tells us in Joshua 19, verse 9. Just write it down, but I'll read it to you. So it says, The inheritance of the children of Simeon was included in the share of the children of Judah. Here's why. For the share of the children of Judah was too much for them, Therefore, the children of Simeon had their inheritance within the inheritance of that people. So really, that, that's really where it is. It's, there's nothing more to it than that. And so as we look through verses 24 through 33, it's gonna list the names and the towns where the Simeonites dwelt. And we're not gonna read these for the sake of time. So let's just go ahead and skip down to verse 33 because it's just a list of, of these towns. But notice in verse 33, it says, And all the villages that were around these cities, as far as Baal, there was a city named Baal, and these were their dwelling places, and they maintained their genealogy. They maintained their genealogy. Genealogies were very uh, special to the Jewish people, they still are. And Unlike many people in the world, they know where they came from. And many of them, even though there have been fires in, in, in the temples that have destroyed many of these things, many of these things have been being able to be reconstructed to some extent, going back quite a bit of ways. And so they are more aware of their genealogy than we are. <laughs> they, you know, they have a, a tight-knit group. And, um, and it's really a sweet thing, actually, to, to see how how important that is to them because they know who they are. They know where they've been. They know where they're going. Or they might not know exactly where they're going if they don't believe in Christ, but they they, they need to. And so, going on here uh, in verse 34, it says, Meshobab, Jamlech, and Johah, the son of Amaziah, Joel, and Jehu, the son of Joshebaiah, the son of Saraiah, the son of Asiel, Elionei, uh, Jaacobah, and Jeshoshiah, Asahiah, Adiel, Jesimiel, and Benaniah, Zizah, the son, how would you like to have a name like Zizah? What's your name? Zizah. Oh, right? Okay, how do you spell it? <laughs> Zizah, the son of Sh- Shiphai, the son of Elan, the son of Jediah, the son of Shimrai, the son of Shemaiah. And these mentioned by name were leaders in their families and their fathers' houses increased greatly it's within the line of Simeon. And you know what I think is really interesting? As, you know, as I'm reading these names, you may think, well, what's the point now? Right now I'm reading some of them. I'm, I, I'm not going to read every single name as we go through all of these, especially in the coming chapters, um, but what I think is interesting is that when you look at the detail that is here, these names aren't made up. These are real people, real records. And I love it how they say, and these people dwelt in these towns, and this is what they did. There's something about that that's really important to God, and it's important to, it ought to be important to us. And, and history is really important. It's important to know who we came from, where we are currently, and where we're going. Because if you don't know where you're going, or you don't know where you've come from, like what they're trying to do with all the history books and the, revision, the revisions that they're doing to American history, in a couple generations, if not already, kids aren't going to know where this country came from, how it came about. They're trying to scrub that out from underneath them with a goal in mind. And it's a horrible, detestable thing to remove a history from a people. Because it's subversive, it's demonic. There's a plan in place. A very specific and purposeful reason for doing so. And anybody supporting it should be ashamed of themselves and resign immediately and move to the communist country that makes them feel comfortable. Amen? Amen? All right, I'll jump back off that platform now. But notice, um, these mentioned by name were leaders in their families and their houses uh, increased greatly in verse 39. So they went to the entrance of Gador. Notice, we don't even know where this place is. But God knows where it is and that's where they resided. Gador, as far as the east side of the valley to seek pasture for their flocks. So now we know where it is and why they went there. I mean, where, where, where do you find history that that's specific? To a specific people to a specific area, I love that, and they found rich, notice they sought and they found it, they found rich, good pasture, and the land was broad, it was quiet and peaceful and for some Hamites formerly lived there. who were the Hamites? Anybody recall the Hamites? They were the descendants of Ham, remember Ham ham uh, ham uh, shem, ham, and japheth The Hamites were the people who uh, resided and ultimately spent a, a good deal of their time in what you and I would call Egypt. The Egyptians are called Hamites. They're Hamitic. They came from that line, and they settled there in modern-day Egypt. And so, so they lived there, and these, verse 41, recorded by name, came in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and they attacked their tents, and the Menuit, the the Menites, Who were found there and utterly destroyed them as it is to this day. And so they dwelt in their place because there was pasture for their flocks there. And that was the whole reason. You know, a very simple thing. We dwelt there because that's where our animals needed to, to, to feed. And by feeding our animals, guess what? They got fed as well. It's very simple, isn't it? I mean, you think about everything in the Bible, it's not really complicated. It's the same thing that you and I would desire had we been living back there. We would have done the same thing. Well, there's no place for our livestock to eat. We better find a place to feed them. And so you go and you feed them. And as a result, you and your families are being fed as well. Pretty simple. And God records it for us. Now, some of them, 500 men of the sons of Simeon went to Mount Seir, having in as their captains, uh, captains Pelatiah, Neriah, Rephaiah, and Uziel, the sons of Ishi. And they defeated the rest of the Amalekites who had escaped, and they have dwelt there to this day. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? And then it goes on and talks about the family of Reuben. Now, So if you look at the map on the screen now, so now we've looked at Judah, we've looked at Simeon, now we're going to go all the way around to the, the bottom part of the uh, southern part of the Dead Sea, going up past Moab, and right here at the River Arnon, I believe it is. Uh, let, me, let me see what that is. Oh, I just messed it up, didn't I? Um, it's the, uh, the Arnon River. That's where, uh... (laughs) what am I doing? I don't know what I'm doing. There we go. So it's the Arnon River. So now we have this, um, we're going to be talking about Reuben. Now notice that Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, it's called the half-tribe of Manasseh because there's an east Manasseh and then a west Manasseh. This tribe was divided by two. But notice these two-and-a-half tribes here on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And they were supposed to all cross over together, Remember? But they wanted to stay on the eastern side because there was plenty of room for their livestock. And remember, the children of Israel defeated all of those kings on the eastern side of the Jordan River. They, they, they you know, from, of Bashan up, uh, up there by the north of the Sea of Galilee, that whole area there, uh, Bashan and, and uh, Hez, Hez, uh, the other kings of those areas, they defeated them all. And then they were going to cross over. And then two and a half tribes said, "You know, this is really nice over here. We don't want to go over. And Moses is like, okay. <laughs> he goes to prayer and God tells him, hey, if those guys aren't willing to fight, because they had battles when they crossed over the Jordan River right here, and they crossed over from this side over to the west and they encountered Jericho, that was going to be a big battle for them. And they would be battling as they took over that area. And it's recorded for us in Joshua. And then the allotments of land that were given to them. But their brothers, God says, you have to go over and fight with your brothers. And when they have settled in their land, now that we've defeated all the enemies over here on the eastern side where you guys can live, you guys come over and help all those men establish their lands. And then you can go back with your little ones and you can establish, get established in a land and so that's exactly what they did. So Reuben, notice verse um, uh, verse one of Chronicles five. Let's just go as far as we can into uh, chapter five here. We may only get down to uh, verse 10, we'll see. But uh, now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, and he was indeed the firstborn. But because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that the genealogy is not listed according to the birthright. Now, you recall back in Genesis 35, um, it's been a while since we've been in Genesis. Um, It's been years, actually, since we've been in this passage. But this occurred, um, this uh, instance where Reuben... The the son of Jacob, because remember, Jacob had sons, right? Twelve sons. His firstborn was Reuben. Reuben, it says it happened when Israel dwelt in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. And so he did this horrible thing by sleeping with one of his father's concubines And Jacob evidently did nothing about it. There's no record of him disciplining his son. But it does tell us something in Genesis 49 as Jacob was finally dying. Just to give you a little bit of background on Reuben. As Jacob was dying, he basically prophesies over all of his sons there as he's leaning on the bedpost about ready to die. And one of the things he said about Reuben he says, gather together that, may I tell, that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. And then he says to Reuben, he says this, and I quote, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water. And I can just see Jacob, you know, unstable as water. An old man with a finger, unstable as water. You shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. And this is the only time in the Bible that we know of where Jacob finally brings it out. At his deathbed. Isn't that interesting? A lot of things happen at deathbeds. It's a shame that we've got to wait until somebody's about to die to hear the truth about something that happened many years ago. Some things are too hideous. I don't know about you, but if there's anything that I'm going to share, if if I'm there on my deathbed, I want what I share to be a real blessing. (laughs) You know, where there's no shadows, it's only blessings. And so, I, I mean... Just think about that as you have things on your heart, maybe there's someone in your family, and this kind of goes off a little bit from what we're talking about here, but I 'm just going to share it anyway. you know why wait till the end of your life to get the record straight? Why not get the record straight now and let the let the, let the fireworks happen and let the some time take place and, and then Say you're sorry and and, and make up and and do the right things. Why not do that? Why wait to the end to try and resolve things? Why drop the bomb on your last breath? Why not drop it, you know, 30 years prior? Speak. Share. Be truthful. Be honest. Yes, even when it hurts. I'd rather. Speak while I'm in good condition than to wait until I'm old and decrepit and dying. Say it now while you in the living years. In the living years. But yet, verse two, Judah prevailed over his brothers. And because of Reuben's uh, transgression, the, the first uh, the birth, the birthright didn't go to Reuben. It actually went to Joseph and his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. That's where the, 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 the birthright went, and it didn't go to Judah. But it says, yet Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him, notice what it says here, from him came a ruler, although the birthright was Joseph's. Meaning Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, again, in that same passage in Genesis 49, I'm going to read to you something that I've read to you many times up here, and that's in Genesis 49, verse 8 through 12. Because verse 2 here intimates exactly what Jacob said to Judah. Judah didn't have the birthright, but there was one to come from him. Notice what Jacob said to Judah. He says, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. And that's literally what Judah's name means, is praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children, notice, your father's children, meaning all the children there and their descendants, will ultimately bow down before you. "'Judah is a lion's wealth. "'From the prey, my son, you have gone up. "'He bows down, he lies down as a lion, "'and as a lion, who shall rouse him? "'The scepter shall not depart from Judah, "'nor a lawgiver from before between his feet "'until Shiloh comes.'" A reference to Jesus Christ coming from the line of Judah. All of this stuff. And then it says, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Remember, all of the other sons are going to bow down to him. They will, ultimately. Everyone's going to bow. Every knee shall bow to Jesus Christ. Every tongue will confess to the glory of God that Jesus Christ is God. They will. Believer and unbeliever. For us, it's going to be really easy. But even the unbelievers in the judgment that is to come, that's recorded for us at the white throne judgment in Revelation 20, they will bow and they will confess that Jesus Christ is God before they are sent to their doom. Can you imagine that? They will. And God will make them. And they will. Before they're sent into outer darkness you think that pleases God? I don't think so. It doesn't please him. He even says it in his word. I do not delight in the death of the wicked. But I love this. Doesn't this sound so much like Christ? Listen to the rest of this prophecy that Jacob gives to Judah. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. What does that remind you of? When Jesus rode in to Jerusalem on the donkey, Remember? And his donkey's colt to the choice one. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. Doesn't that sound to me? Doesn't it sound to you like when Christ comes back in his second coming and he goes to Basra and he delivers those 144,000 out of Petra? And they're gonna say, what is this? Who is this that comes up? What does Isaiah 63 or 61 tells us? Who is this who comes out of Basra with his clothes stained in blood? And Christ will answer, I just was in battle and I slaughtered them all. And now I'm on my way up to Jerusalem. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk, speaking of his purity and his vitality. And then going on in verse three, it says, the sons of Reuben... The firstborn of Israel were Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmai. The sons of Joel were Shemaiah his son, Gog his son, Shimei his son, Micah his son, Reah his son, Baal his son, and Bera his son, whom Tiglath Pileser, king of Assyria, carried into captivity. He was leader of the Reubenites. And so what we are seeing here is this time that we have already looked at in 2 Kings when Tiglath-Pileser, whose original name was called Pul, P-U-L, And after his ascent to the throne, his name was changed to Tiglath-Pileser. And he was the one, remember, in 722 B.C., came and removed not only all of those tribes, Reuben and Gad. He did that earlier, actually. And then he came over into the northern part of uh, uh, coming down into uh, uh, Israel from the north and took the rest, the northern ten tribes, captive. It was him. And it's around this time that this happened And he was the leader of the Reubenites, and they were the first to be taken captive because they were easy, slim pickings, these uh, tribes on the eastern side of the the Jordan River. Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, because just over, even further uh, east of that, is Assyria. So it was easy for them to come in, and they had this natural boundary of, uh, of the Jordan River that they were sitting ducks. And because they chose rather to be on that side than to join their brothers over on the other side, they were like sitting ducks. And they were the first ones who were taken captive. There's a lesson there, isn't there? They got what they wanted temporarily, but in the end, they were the first ones to be wiped out and taken captive. And his brethren by their families when the genealogy of their generations was registered. Notice again, there's a lot of this speak in these verses. When the genealogy of their generations was registered, the chief... Jeiel and Zechariah and Bela the son of Azaz the son of Shema the son of Joel who dwelt in Aurora as far as Nebo and Baal-meon eastward they settled as far as the entrance of the wilderness this side of the Euphrates rivers because here, there's a reason why again a very simple reason for them to settle why because their cattle had multiplied in the land of Gilead here's Gilead right here this whole mountain range on the eastern side is called Gilead you'll even and see it here on a map, um, and it's Gilead. So they settled over in this area over here because there was plenty of land. There's a mountain range here, but just on the other side, there's a lot of flat land, a lot of lush land, and that's where they would uh, settle. Now in the days, verse 10, of Saul, and this is Saul, Israel's first king, they made war with the Hagrites, who fell by their hand, and they dwelt in their tents throughout the entire east of Gilead. And the children of Gad dwelt next to them, as we can see, dwelt just north of them. And the children of Gad dwelt next to them in the land of Bashan, as far as Selkah, And Joel was the chief, Shaphim the next, and then Janiah and Shapheth in Bashan. And Bashan is this area up in the northern part of Israel on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, up there by, um, this would be modern day um, uh, uh, Syria, right up in this area, and their brethren and their father's house, Micael, and Meshulam, Sheba, Jorei, Jacob, Zia, and Eber, seven and all. These were the children of Abihel, the son of Hurai, the son of Jeroh, the son of Gilead, the son of Mikael, Mich- uh, the son of Jesheshiah, the son of Jado, the son of Buzz. How would you like to have a name like Buzz? What's your name, Buzz? You know, I just see this guy with this haircut who's just kind of like flat on top and kind of spiky. He looks like Beaker from the Muppet Show, maybe. And nothing against this guy. I'm sure he's a great fellow, but you know, buzz. I mean, anyway. So Ahai, the son of Abdiel, the son. You have to do this stuff in the middle of these geni genealog- to wake you guys up because right now you're kind of like flatlining, right? So uh, the son of Gunai was chief of their father's house, and the Gadites dwelt in Gilead, in Bashan and its villages, and in all the common lands of Sharon within their borders. And we're coming close to the end here. Um, Getting close. And the Gadites dwelt in Gilead, in Bashan and its villages, and in the common lands of Sharon within their borders. All these, again, notice, were registered by genealogies, in the days of Jotham, we've looked at Jotham, the king of Judah. And in the days of Jeroboam, king of Israel, we've looked at his life and his reign in Second Kings and First Kings. And, but notice, and these were registered by genealogies. The Jewish people, they were always very careful about their lineage. And as a result, they were very detailed about it. And even today, they're careful about who and what nationalities they inter, you know, intermingle with to marry. How many of you have seen The Fiddler on the Roof? If you haven't seen the musical, the original, Fiddler on the Roof, go get it and watch it. It'll blow your mind. It's a real blessing. But one of the cool things about that is exactly what's, what's here because they, they had so much pride in their genealogy. And, and remember... Uh, Tevye, Tevye, the father, he was struggling with his daughters because one of them really liked a nice tailor, a young Jewish boy, and they were all happy about him, but they really didn't like him so much because he was a tailor. But then some of the other girls wanted to marry boys, you know, Gentiles from other places. And the father, Tevye, was like beside himself, and he's always looking to God and saying, Lord, what did I do? And then they pan off way in the distance, and you can see the sun. But look at them, they're so in love you know, and it's a riot, it's riotous. You gotta go get the fiddler on the roof, the original, okay? But that's what this is all about. They maintain their genealogies. And they always wanted their young men to marry a nice young Jewish girl. And you know, there's nothing wrong with that. There's plenty of girls to choose from. Many of them were arranged. How would you like an arranged marriage? You know, and your your dad ladies set you up with some man. He's got a big wart on the, on the front of his nose, you know, and he's got this big old wart in his nose. Thanks, Dad. But he's a great banker. Oh, that makes it all better. <laughs> right? And why did God do that? Why was he concerned? I mean, was God, and I'm just going to read one thing here, and then we'll, we'll be um, actually... God did not, God is not a bigot. He had a reason for having them stay close and to stay within their genealogy, to stay within their own ethnic group. And the reason for that is very simple. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, Uh, God says, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. And so when he brought them into the land, he told them in this chapter, he says, go in and wipe out everything. All of these evil people in in Canaan, which was on on the western side over here, go in and wipe everything out. And why? Was it because God hated people? No, he loved them, but he gave them opportunity to repent. They did not repent, and judgment was coming. I don't know if you know this, but judgment does come. God gives a a, a grace period. Sometimes he gives you a lot of grace, and then there comes a point. In a nation, in a person's life, if they continue in a direction, the day comes like a thief if you don't know Christ. You're driving home. You still haven't given your heart to the Lord. You're driving home thinking nothing of it, and somebody cuts you off, and you're dead. You thought you had years yet to think about it. But God says, no, I don't want you intermingling with these people. And why? Is it because he just bigoted? No, because they serve false gods and they will lead you into idolatry and then I'll have to judge you. I don't want to do that, God says. So stay away from them. Stay within your own clan. I'm going to create a special, unique people. There's nothing wrong with that either, right? Right? God wanted them to be separate. So the sons of Reuben, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh had 40,000 uh, let's see where we're at here. We've got to get down to verse uh, 22. We're almost there, folks. Hang on. The sons of Reuben, the Gadites, half-tribe of Manasseh, had 40,760 valiant men, men able to bear shield and sword, to shoot with the bow, and to skillful, that are skillful in war, who went to war. And they made war with the Hagrites, Jeter, and Naphish, and Nodab. And they were helped against them. So now the, the, the Gadites are going to war with these people, and they were helped, and God helped them. And and, and, uh, and the Hagarites were delivered into the Gadites, into their hand, and all who were with them. For, and here's the reason. For they cried, verse 20, they cried out to God in the battle. So they must have been in, in, in a really bad place, and they knew that they were going to get beat, or they were getting beat, and they cried out to God, and he heeded their prayer because they put their trust in him. Again, notice a simple thing. Just a simple prayer is all it needs. You don't need to, you know speak in 17th century English. Oh, God of, you know, thither and hither and yon, and, you know, and you're you're going on, and and, and God's, will you just be honest? You're about to die. You're about to get an arrow in your chest. What is it that you want? Help, Lord. Okay, thanks for asking. And then he helps. (laughs) He does it so many times. And they cried out to God. He heeded their prayers because they put their trust in. Then they, then they took away their livestock, meaning the, the, the Gadites took away these these Hagrites. They, they took their livestock, 50,000 of their camels, 250,000 of their sheep, 2,000 of their donkeys, and also 100,000 of their men. For many fell dead because the war was God's. Notice that. Many fell dead because the war was God's. When the war is on and God is, is going to be victorious, you don't have to fret and worry, even though we do. We get to the end and we're like, God, you got to help. And I wish America, and I'll just end here because we're done here. For, for many fell dead because uh, the war was God's and they dwelt in their place until the captivity and we'll pick up in verse 23 and go onward next week. But I, I just, you know, what, what does it take for, uh, for God, for, for America to cry out to God? It just seems like we're on autopilot as a country. We're just, we don't, we see what's coming and for some reason we're just in a stupor. Even the church. Things are slow, people are waking up and I'm really glad for that. They're, they're starting to not take things for granted anymore. They're starting to pray. Folks, we have to wake up and we have to pray. Because evil, because of evil. I mean, I love our country. I do. I love it with all my heart. That alone is worth rising to the occasion. But let's go even further than that. Let's forget about our country for a moment and think about the people in the country. If we can focus on the main thing, which is what God really wants, and that's the souls of men, regardless of who they are, Republican, Democrat, Independent, Russian, doesn't matter what it is, Ukrainian, people need Christ. They need to come to God. And that's our mission. If we can do that, we're fighting the right battle. But by all means, fight the battle. Don't be a casualty on the sideline. And we become casualties on the sideline when we don't pray. We don't pray personally. We don't pray together corporately. And so again, I ask you to please join us. Spread the word. Every church, when they have a corporate prayer meeting, should be filled to capacity. It ought to be one of the biggest things, services of the week. It's really simple and it's relaxing. I'll be honest with you, it's one of my favorite times. There's no agenda. We just sit there and we pray. And it's comfortable. It's peaceful. Couldn't you use a little rest and peace in your life from your hectic work, work day? Come to prayer on Tuesday night and you'll find you leave a different person. If you're really engaging, you rest in the silence and you listen and you pray. Something about that, folks, and God is in it. Will you join us? Will you join us? Please join us. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you, Lord, just for your word. We thank you for the the examples of prayer that we've seen tonight. Lord, certainly in the Gadites, just a simple prayer in the heat of battle. And certainly in Jabez, a short, simple prayer out of a heart that is compassionate, out of a heart that's desperate. Lord, would you give us that again? Would you give us a desperation? Because, Lord, we we do live in desperate straits right now. Help us, Lord. We ask that you cover us, that you give us strength to share the gospel. We pray for our country, Lord, for the leaders in it, that you convict them of their sin, that you convict the church of her sin, and that we would be your ambassadors again. We thank you for tonight, Lord. I pray that you bless my brothers and sisters. Get them home safely. Bless their day tomorrow, Lord. Bless us, Lord. That's our prayer tonight. Bless us. Two words. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, God bless.